Sincerely, it spoke to my thought and experience. Pascal's comment is intriguing. It is not in Montaigne, but in myself, that I find all that I see in him. A writer with whom we identify ourselves is naturally seen in as many lights as he has readers. We each have our own Montaigne, as we have our own Hamlet and Don Quixote. But this is not the only reason for the diversity of Montaigne's public image. Writing as he did over a period of twenty years, from just under forty until his death, he changed as he wrote, recognized and accepted his change, and made his portrait vary to fit his own variation. I do not portray being, he wrote, 3, 2, pages 6, 10 to 11. I portray passing. My history needs to be adapted to the moment. I may indeed contradict myself now and then, but truth, as Demades said, I do not contradict. Though the evolution of Montaigne's ideas and attitudes is continuous and gradual, there are moments in his thought that have represented different Montaigne's to different generations. His readers have seemed, in a sense, to grow older with him. The stoical humanist of the earliest essays was the Montaigne that his contemporaries saw, the one whom Etienne Pasquier called another Seneca in our language. In the seventeenth century the skeptical revolt against human presumption was seen as the center of Montaigne, the apology for Raymond Sebon as the one important chapter, what do I know as the essence of his thought. Descartes used his skepticism to show that we need a fresh start, and that we cannot doubt without knowing at least that we are thinking when we do. Others earlier and later in the century, Marston, Webster, and probably Shakespeare in England, Pascal in France, found a source of cosmic despair in Montaigne's eloquent catalogue of human limitations. A century after Pascal, Rousseau was struck by the self-portrait that had become Montaigne's principal aim only after the Apology. Most modern readers, like Gide, are struck by the sturdy individualism, the faith in self, man, and nature that emerged so triumphantly in the final essays. All these attitudes are in Montaigne. None contains him. The style of the essays is part of the self-portrait. Free, oral, informal, personal, concrete, luxuriant in images, organic and spontaneous in order, ranging from the epigrammatic to the rambling and associative, it communicates the flavor of the man. Abstract notions live and move and breathe under his pen. Here is a sample on borrowing ideas from others. The bees plunder the flowers here and there, but afterward they make of them honey, which is all theirs. It is no longer time or marjoram. 126, page 111. Or again on the theme that small learning makes for presumption, great learning for humility. To really learned men has happened what happens to ears of wheat. They rise high and lofty, heads erect and proud, as long as they are empty. But when they are full and swollen with grain in their ripeness, they begin to grow humble and lower their horns. 2.12, page 370. The whole chapter on education, 126, a subject in which stylistic anemia is endemic, is a stream of images as vivid as they are appropriate. 
Often Montaigne exemplifies ideas with the same effect. Complacency in the man who, after making a stupid speech, was heard in the lavatory muttering conscientiously that the credit belonged to God, not to himself. Dogmatism in the donkey, earnest, contemplative, disdainful, resolute, cocksure. The narcissism of the creative artist in the friend who kept his diary by his daily chamber pots, and in whose nostrils all conversation on other subjects stank. Each reader can fill in his own favorite examples. His concreteness is everywhere apparent. He himself tells us that the speech he loves is a speech succulent and sinewy, brief and compressed, not so much dainty and well-combed as vehement and brusque. 126, page 127. Flaubert described Montaigne's style as a delicious fruit that fell.